All right, let's get started tonight. <laughs> now, I apologize to the ones that didn't hear the first one. Romans 13, 1 through 7, part 2. And so it's on how we should treat our government. We did the first one and we did the context. We did the language. We did what was actually in the text that a lot of people don't read the whole passage in its entirety. And we also talked about what was going on at the time. And we had a lot of fun with it because it seemed like that Paul really wanted to talk about capital punishment and taxes. So we'll begin there. Uh, we're going to go to Romans 13 once again. And we're going to talk about the way that I present it or the way that I see the difference of what you do with government if it gets out of control. And it's very difficult. It's very difficult when you have someone you love that's out of control. And if you love your nation and it's out of control, how do you handle it? It makes a chaotic mess. So anyway, I'm gonna begin with telling you the way that it came to me was actually on a trip down to Houston. And we were driving down there and we were having our mission trip to port cities. And so we were invited by a whole bunch of different churches in the Houston area to come in, take a mission team in, and do all kinds of fun things. And we really had a great mission trip, a lot of evangelism, a lot of church service organizations, working with pastors, encouraging everyone, going into prisons. One guy had committed murder. He had gotten out of prison miraculously. I think it was a governor's pardon. And we worked with him going back into prisons. And so during this, I started doing the type of leadership that I've most enjoyed and that's preparing different guys to launch them. And so I would turn a team over to men that I had hand chosen. And I'd been discipling them, we prepared them, and they would take over the team. But I learned something pretty quick about this. And that was in Houston, watching the guys that led the mission teams, there was a big difference between men that led with authority and men that led with control. And suddenly I was like, wow, when a guy doesn't have authority, it is terrible in leadership. It's like it splatters in every direction. The group is hard enough to hold together on any good day. Someone once compared it to being like herding cats when you're out witnessing. And if you've ever had that joy of trying to keep animals together, you would do better with animals than our cross lines teams. So in a hurry, you could see a lot about a man. And I had never thought about the difference, but some of the guys rose up and they led quite well. Like I was like, they lead with strength. They lead with authority. Like it was beautiful watching them. Others, it wasn't so joyous. They were running in every direction. And then they'd get mad or they'd get weak. It was one way or the other trying to make the team work. And they were just nervous. They were white-knuckle gripping, trying to make it work. And I realized something that over the years is there's a big difference between the quiet strength of authority, the times when authority has to be strong and loud, and the times that it can just have quiet strength, and the difference between control. And so to me, authority isn't something you try to gather up in yourself in the heat of the moment, in the midst of the problem. Oops, I need to get authority over these kids. I need to get authority over this team. They need to respect me. But authority is a preventative. Authority is something you do now so that it's there for later. Authority is like a deposit in the bank. So when you're facing it, you already have it inside in you for the withdrawal. 
You get your authority together before you walk into the difficult situation. You could tell those who were prepared to lead. Control, totally different. Control is panic. Control is the absence of spiritual strength. Control is what you try to use because you didn't come into the situation with your authority up and running. So I will read you Romans 13. It reads, all authority is from God. Let me say it to you in my words. All authority is from God. All control is from Satan. All control is from self. And like he told Peter, you're thinking about yourself. (laughs) You've got your mind on man's interest. Get behind me, Satan. And so all authority is from God. All control is from Satan. So this is how I would approach the subject. How Paul did it with the language. How he did it with the context of the people he was speaking to. And this is how I'm going to speak to you based on what he said. And that's God is all over authority. God is authority. God is power. Oh, he's majestic. He's all powerful. He's all authority. But how does this sound? God is a controller. God is controlling. No, I don't like God is a controller. God is authority and God is power. So, coming from the Godhead down, he gives delegated authority. And then on the other side of delegated authority is domination and control. And that's what weak leadership uses. When they don't have authority coming down from heaven, they don't have the power of God on their life, they don't have the strength that God gives you, it becomes domination. It becomes control. And, you know, the people being led, sometimes they can't sense the difference between control and authority. But let's put it in terms we all understand. Women, it's the man you date or marry, or have for a father, or a pastor, or they're a government leader, a government servant. If you date a man, let's just start with the dating, who has authority, oh, it's the way it's supposed to be. First of all, he has keys. (laughs) Some of you women have dated men just because of what the key went into. (laughs) <laughs> I remember that certain car that what was it 442 am I right on the <laughs> the key <laughs> goes in the slot <laughs> he has keys when a man has keys he has authority you know maybe when a girl's dating she should say let me see your key rings let me see how many keys you have keys give option you know men with authority have turf You know, when I think of dating a man with authority, his word stands. Every other man, they're put down. Their word's not as high up. The man with authority, his word stands. When he's spoken, it's settled. A man with authority has something else. It's this dangerous little thing called power. So you mix having power with a good heart, and power is wonderful. So you're dating a man with authority, and with power. Oh, don't try to make this humble. But he's greater than those around him. That's why you picked him out. (laughs) He stands out in a crowd. He has resources. He comes into a situation with forethought. He brings pre-planning to it. He has wisdom. The one thing he doesn't have is fear. You want to build a relationship with him. 
It's true strength. It's respect. Authority. And this is how I see authority. Authority is one of those beautiful things that gives you layers of protection. Like it gives you something else between you and evil. You know what kind of man he is. But a man who's a controller. Let me let y'all speak out. The first thing about a controller is what? What do you think of? What comes to mind? Come on, say it. What's a controller? He wants the remote control. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it. <laughs> that summarizes it. <laughs> controller, what is he? Angry. Scared. Scared. Selfish. Sneaky. Manipulates. Controllers manipulate. They may be passive aggressives. They're weak, but they will have a way of getting you. He takes what isn't his. He tricks you. He doesn't give you something of value. Governments. What kind of government? Authority? Or control because this is in term of government governments are just a bunch of men together humankind all poised together what we bring to the table it's not a gender thing it's a strength thing and some people can't tell the difference on governments you know it looks all the same to them I would say that a Christian that can't discern the difference between good government and bad government they've just never been through a church split <laughs> a church split. What controllers do? They panic. And the one thing they do is they make everything be all about themselves. A controller always makes everything be about himself. A person of drama, they make everything be how it affects them. A person of authority doesn't need to. He doesn't get his strength from other people. They're not his only option, opportunity. You know, hard-knuckle controllers, pride, insecure. Controllers are worse. You know, when you see that arrogant, prideful guy, I thought that was the worst until I met a controller that was weak and insecure. Weak and insecure makes terrible decisions. The group scatters. They fall apart. Authority. You respect the strength, the wisdom, and their ability to hear God under pressure. They know what to do. They don't have anything to prove. They go into it with nothing to prove. They're very sure of themselves because they've been there with the Lord. It's like King David. I've killed the lion and the bear. They know what they can do with the Lord, but yet they're the kind of men that like a challenge. Authority. So in reading Romans 13, I can't read it any other way but to say all authority is from God and all control is frightening. It's scary. <laughs> so it puts us in a predicament because we have to restrain the control and submit to authority. You know, they talked about there's a different word here that Paul used because he's been going backwards and forth. He uses the word obey 
for some relationships we have, and he uses the word submit for other relationships. He chose not to use the word obey for this, and he's been using these verbs. So he purposely said, be subject. The word is in the middle voice that indicates the meaning is to subordinate oneself. This action is one that Christians should choose themselves. It's not forced from above. No man wants a woman he has to force her to submit to him. No woman wants to be forced to submit. That's control. It won't work. It won't last. Same with government. Let me tell you what's so beautiful. Since I grew up with very good authority over me, I never saw submission as a bad thing. I thought, great. It gives me a double layer of a covering of protection. Like, literally, I've got strong men around me that will totally take care of me. And I love submission. I thought that was the greatest thing there was because it gave extra strength. It gave me that two put 10,000 to flight. But when you switch from the way you were raised as a child to going into maybe a situation that shocks you like government or someone not having your best interest in mind, someone that doesn't see themselves as a protection for you, literally, you can't submit yourself to them. They will not look out for your best interest. And when you look in Romans 13, it is hilarious because Paul is telling you they will look out for your best interest. And so government has to have that characteristic that it looks out for the good of you. And it says don't be bad because it doesn't carry a sword for nothing. Don't be bad. Because it's meant, it's meant to punish evildoers. That's what Paul says. Did you know weak, cowardly controllers will not punish evil? Men with authority, it says they don't carry the sword in vain. They have the ability to punish evil. Weak men. Let me say it where we understand it. City boys. <laughs> they don't understand what a sword's for. Mama took it away from them and told them, don't play with that, somebody's going to get hurt. That's the purpose. <laughs> Somebody needs to get hurt. It's so criminals don't get away. It's so lawlessness is not going crazy. Paul says you don't carry the sword in vain. But it's a man of strength that carries a sword. And all he has to do is tap it. And everybody behaves. It's like when dad comes home, mama's been screaming till she has no vocal cords. But dad says it, and it almost makes her mad. Everybody does what they should. You know, with my dad, there was this slight rattle that happened. It put the house in order. It was the buckle. I don't know why he would choose to unbuckle. But I knew what was going to happen. I was like, I'd hear the buckle, and the house became perfect peace. Men, you carry the sword on purpose. It's your strength. So with that authority and with that respect is the fact that evil people fear you. And if evil people don't fear you, you are not in authority. You're playing the good old boy game. You're playing what's best for you. You're that sneaky little snaky guy. But if you have strength, they'll fear you because they know what you're capable of doing to them if they keep it up. It's authority. It gives us that ability to rest in peace. 
So with submission, the beautiful part of it is it gives you the ability to submit. Choice. That's what I like about authority. I have the choice to submit to you. And the Lord makes it fun. It says you can submit one to another. I submit. I like submitting. Give me something to submit to. You know, when I think about this, I think about Deborah Brack. That story just kind of mixes it all up out of judges. Because there was authority there. Of all things, it's a woman judge. (laughs) But the free choice makes it so much more interesting in this story. What I like about Deborah and Barak, and I was studying this, there's not control involved. It's mutual submission to each other. And authority gives choices. When you're an authority, you give people a lot more choices than you thought possible. Authority didn't control. Deborah was not a controller. She says, thus saith the Lord. Barak didn't control. But Barak said, I can't do this. I'm just not going to do this prophetic word without you going along with me. So they saddle up together. That's choices. That makes scripture interesting. I mean, who's heard of it? Well, if you're going to be, let's just say, man enough to give a word that I can defeat him, then you just come along with me and show that that word's from God. I mean, it's fun. And it makes relationships fun. Authority makes relationships fun. And so you can enjoy having choices. You can enjoy giving choices. I want people to do what I ask them to do because they think that's wisdom. That really makes sense. I would have never thought of that option. I'm not trying to coerce you into it. I want you to be like stunned. That came from a few hours of praying in the spirit. That came from really seeking the face of God. That decision came from strength. Authority is so much more fun. And men, your job is to teach your sons to walk in authority. Your job is to make it easy for me when they come into cross lines, that I can trust them to lead a team. Because a man needs to be taught what authority looks like. He needs to understand authority. So uh, Brack and Deborah had a lot of fun with it. And then she tells him, I'll go with you. Only thing is, a woman's going to get the credit for all of history. Guys, this story is not preached any other way except that she went with him. I personally think she thought that she would be the one to, you know, route the head guide. It was another woman driving a tent peg through his head. And, you know, in Hebrew, they call her Yael. And go to Israel, every third woman's named Yael. <laughs> you talk about she had power. <laughs> Y'all, we're, we're talking about men power because if we get into women power, yeah, there's no way to describe the power a woman has. To make him feel comfortable, to put that sweet little, you know, cover over him. For her to say, I've tucked you right into bed, I mean... We won't even go there. It's not even, it's kind of like we don't even need to study what that kind of power is. You just got to be on the right side of it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That guy fell and he's an embarrassment to his own mother. So authority, power. The women wrote songs about his mother after it was over with. It's fun, y'all. And government was made to have that. If you're a wise leader, 
you come up with ideas to rule your people that nobody thought of that you have all kinds of options for them like they think I'm very pleased to be a part of this they have an investment in it they feel like they're a party to it because there's choices and that's the beauty of authority people are missing it all alone just like I think people are like missing it by saying I wonder how far away from God I can walk and still be across that line and still make it you know how people are I wonder how bad I can be and still God will not you know punish me well people do control that way I wonder how controlling I can be without getting in trouble when really the fun part of life is to be the kind of kid growing up that you have so much fun in your family you don't want to rebel why rebel it'd be just wasted time with government why have a duck-eyed fit and make a mess when you could really as individuals come together and make it stronger I see two men sitting together over there and their two organizations came together and they built something that honored my dad yeah that's what government looks like just take that and multiply it it's beautiful it's meant to be how God has it so the problem comes into being is when you can't give a government obedience and submission or you've got to restrain the control and you get into this with Daniel and we've been taking a deep look into Daniel we've taken a deep dive because he's very much the prophetic guy for the end days but he did not bow down to an impossible government but Nebuchadnezzar Daniel was forced into service and he served but he also negotiated and he also was prophetic he was the prophetic voice to the pagan king and he did not do what the king ordered him to do he did not follow the laws of the land he said no and his three friends followed suit they were thrown into the furnace because they said I will not bow and I will sign this in my own you can't even say blood charcoal <laughs> I'm not gonna bow God's gonna be faithful so Daniel led the way in standing up to power and guess what happened when Daniel was fierce to power like he cut power no slack power did it his way he didn't do it the way the power said to do it and I'm talking about Nebuchadnezzar plus all his government officials plus all his advisors all of them had to submit to Daniel Daniel did not submit to them and what's funny guess what Daniel got to lead his government leader to the one true God he got to lead his government leader to one true faith in God he got to lead Nebuchadnezzar to the Lord it takes a man of no compromise to really make everyone change to fit what the Lord's saying you know Daniel submitted to Nebuchadnezzar until the moments he didn't but he didn't submit to Belshazzar and Belshazzar was another government official over him and the reason is it's what we've talked about about that mocking spirit and it's going to get greater in the days we're living with that people are going to mock God but he began openly mocking God and he went and got all the the treasure that Nebuchadnezzar had carried into Babylon and he had a drunken orgy party with it and when Daniel came in he did not show this king respect 
This guy got attitude. Daniel had an attitude with Belshazzar. See, even in these circles, with the pagan king and with this one that seceded him, you see a difference in how Daniel treated him. One, he treated with respect. And he carried his heart in his hand would be how I said it. He said to Nebuchadnezzar, Oh, I wish this prophecy that I was giving to you, Nebuchadnezzar, I wish I was saying it to your enemies and not to you. You can tell, he's telling the guy, I love you, even though you made me captive. I love you. I wish I was prophesying to your enemies, but I'm prophesying to you. With Belshazzar, he said, you're going to die. And he had attitude with him. He did not command any kind of respect. There was authority with Nebuchadnezzar. Surprisingly, God was dealing with him. You've got to be sensitive to pagans. You've got to determine, is God dealing with them? Is God working in their life? Is he speaking to them in their dreams? Are they being open to you? Are they calling you into their presence to say, hey, what's being said to me? That creates a different environment. But not this guy. He tried to do it with funny business. He tried to do it with playing games. He tried to reward him. Belshazzar approached Daniel a totally different way. And it takes a lot of discernment to see the difference. But he was doing the type of thing that pagans do. To play like that they're submitted to you, but not. You know, restraining the control. Daniel moves into a third form of government. This is a different empire. This time, he was thrown in the lion's den with Darius. And I would say with this one, he disobeyed respectfully. <laughs> Sometimes he had civil disobedience. But this one, if Daniel did this to two dictatorships and three kings, can you imagine what God expects out of us for your government? When it's a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. That it's a covenant written to show the world that we are a light. A city set on a hill that shows God's love to the nations and is in charge of evangelism. Can you imagine if this was how Daniel handled two dictatorships, three kings, Two empires. Can you imagine what God thinks when you're the one seated in your government and your government is your servant? You know, it's childish to think the mere existence of power makes it legitimate. That there's a legitimacy to power. No. Power does not have a legitimacy. You've got to derive the source. In Luke 10, 19, it says, I've given you all authority and I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy. The enemy, the devil, the demons have power. You know, Jesus talks about this and, and you can write down Matthew 20, 25 through 28 and Luke 22, 25 through 27. And it talks about that these two types of people do it two different ways. And he's telling his disciple, it says, But Jesus called to him and said, You know the rulers, the princes of the Gentiles? They lord it. They lord it over you. They execute dominion, control, subjugate. And their great ones exercise this over them. But he said, Not so with you. 
This isn't how you do it. See, he's explaining to them, it looks different on you. Gentile authority will use force and a lording it over you. Not with you. His kingdom comes in a different way. It comes with strength. Gentiles use the power of coercion, force, fear base, intimidation. Like you don't have any other tools. Domination. This is how the Gentiles do it. Not us. You know, when you're constraining, resisting, coming against a government that's not right, you can find types and shadows in the Old Testament of how the Pharaohs were. You know, Pharaoh got angry with Moses when he said, let my people go. And I was shocked when I read the story closer was it says that Moses got angry back at Pharaoh. You know, I was going through a rough time and I went forward at Martin's church and I said, would you give me a word? And I utilized that word every day, what Martin said. He said, let my people go. Let every man, let every woman, every child, let every man, let every woman, let every child, down to the last hoof, let my people go. And I would end with down to the last hoof. That's strength. It's disobeying your government. Passover, it's a celebration of standing up to your government, not doing what it says, realizing we belong to God. We will not submit to slavery. We will not be enslaved by a tyrant. That's what Passover means. And if you try to kill us, we'll have our babies before you can get there. And we'll lie to you and tell you they're dead. Before the Egyptian midwives can get there, we will deceive you. This is how you handle poor government. This is how you handle a person that's big in their own mind that will not submit their knee to God. Control. You know, Moses would have never gone down in history if he had just stayed in the palace Patty caking with Pharaoh saying, oh, I'm just loving him by my example. Just <laughs> let's play a few games, a little smoke on the stage, a little bit of lights, and let's sing with the glory girls at night because I'm just, I'm just winning them by my example. It's not how God did it. He's straightforward. And when Pharaoh got angry, Moses got angrier because there were a million people at stake. And I'm not going to say it was the people's good hearts that got them delivered. It was the fact that they had God's name on them. So, when you think of Passover, think of what it really means. It's someone saying, I'm leaving you, and I will not submit to you, no matter what you tell me. For God has spoken. In fact, he said, let's just say we're going to go worship, and we'll return in three days. And they didn't. They don't teach this in Sunday school. And then another government that's even more difficult than a Pharaoh government, one that's more even hard to deal with than these types, is the Ahab and Jezebel government. That's where you import foreign demons in. Like you don't have enough demons in your own country, so you bring in a Hindu to be vice president. It's when you bring into witchcraft and you get Jezebel. And even people who are on that particular stream of thought will admit she's a Jezebel. It's witchcraft. And that one's even more complex and layered of how you deal with Jezebel. 
You know, Ahab flirted with control. Ahab was a Hebrew king, and he flirted with control with Naboth in the vineyard. But he just pouted. He used his little passive self. He didn't get what he wanted, but he had an ace in his hands. Ahab knew he could go cry to his wife. And you know, that's the son of a controlling man. He's not man enough to own his own control. He's going to let a woman go do the dirty for him. So he walks in to his wife. Oh no, he wasn't the one that did what she did. But he knew what kind of woman he was telling it to. And I've seen people, and they don't get their way. And I watch who they choose to tell it to. Sometimes they'll tell it to a mature person that can help guide them through it. But sometimes they'll go out to a witchy kind of person, a controlling kind of person, a drama kind of person. We've all seen this. We've all had to fight it as a group. Because they go to that Jezebel-type person to tell on them. And yeah, technically in Scripture, he knew nothing about it. But he set the whole thing up. He married such a woman. And Jezebel, she could deliver on control. She went and she did that thing that I can't stand the most, and that's slander. She did the ninth commandment. And she just made up a lie. That's one of the hardest things to defeat because you don't know what they're going to tell on you because you didn't do it, so you don't know what they're spreading around. And she created a scene and said, he blasphemed. Hey, Jews, kill him. He blasphemed. She got him dead, came home and said, honey, I got the land for you today. Don't ask any questions. How did Elijah handle his government authority? And he said, there's my government. I shouldn't say something about these murders we know nothing about. We shouldn't speak of these suicides that are suspicious. We shouldn't speak of these unusual things happening in government. We should hide our eyes to them. So Elijah walked straight in. And he prophesied to power and he told him, repent. And then he says, and it's going to be your downfall. He says, because the dogs will lick the blood up. If somebody said such a thing, they will lick her blood up. I dare think that anyone would think that you were a Christian prophet. That's horror. Why would you say such a thing? That's how you stand up for bad government that has witchcraft to it. 1 Kings 21. I'll just say Elijah prophesied to power to repent and downfall. The prophet prophesied to him to repent. So he prophesied to power to repent and the downfall. In this, you have different ways of handling the government. But witchcraft, that spirit of witchcraft coming in the government, it's the worst part of it. The keeping of a government in check is complex and it's layered. And it calls for courage. You know, we don't think about stories like this because usually when we study these type of people in our history of the Reformation, we don't study the conflict they have. But Luther got into a direct conflict with the Anabaptists. And the two of them started fighting it out, and they started fighting over Romans 13. And the opposing school of thought was this guy named Thomas Munzer, who applied Romans 13 to listen to how he interpreted it. It's a kind of revolutionary manifesto by maintaining that the governments are instituted to execute the will of God. So his idea of Romans 13 is they are made, the government, the authority comes from God, so they have to execute the will of God. That's what they're made to do. 
Conversely, if they fail to do so, those who do the will of God are bound to take the sword into their own hands if the government refuses to do it. Yoder suggests that this growing form of resistance theology was rooted in the teachings and who could say this name? Huldrych Zingli. Because Zingli and the radical Anabaptists were contemporaries, it may be impossible to prove who came up with the idea first. So, you see, Romans 13 is what both sides were using to settle the conflict. So, the beauty of a limited government. The best form of government is a limited government. You know, the thing you've got to realize is everyone in office is not God's will. People try to preach this, but not everything that happens is God's will, and everyone in office is not God's will. Let me just say this, Saul was not God's will. 1 Samuel 8, 6, and 7. It says he was the will of the people. And so what you have in government is a theory that people have. It's called the mirror principle. That some leaders are the mirror of the people. And some leaders are put there by God in authority. Isn't that beautiful? So you're either dealing with a mirror or you're dealing with someone that was placed there by God. In fact, all the kings of the Old Testament had this kind of problem going on. 2 Chronicles 21, 20, 2 Chronicles 25, 27, 2 Kings 15, 9. They did evil, and it affected the people. When the unrighteous reigned, the people mourned. Proverbs 29, 2. So the unrighteous are, again, what we're talking about here. It's not God's will. It's the will of the people. It's the mirror of the people. Israel is the only nation who had an office in their government who could rebuke the kings. And this office was prophet. And he got his orders from God. And their job of rebuking the king was very unique to Israel. No other nation had a prophet. In other places, they were beheaded. (laughs) We have a whistleblower. (laughs) That's the best we have. But we failed the Lord on what God meant when he wanted someone that spoke to power. Because power has to be kept in check. That's how come our government was set up the way it was in three different branches. It wasn't because we wanted three branches. It was because they were trying to keep power in check. And so that's how God did it is he put the prophet in there. And what's unusual is you see God giving people choices. And doesn't it kind of scare you to think that sometimes people's choices can override God's choice? That's not how they're preaching it. But people can choose something that God is not saying. 1 Samuel 8 is your perfect example. Samuel tells them, you don't want a king. God doesn't want you to have a king. You shouldn't have a king. But he lets the people's choice override God's. God said, okay, let them have what they want. You don't want a marriage partner when God says, okay, just let them have who they want. (laughs) I need some amens on that. Amen. (laughs) You don't want that marriage partner when they say, just, you can have, they're not going to shut up and listen, just let them have it. You know, I'll never forget Haley telling me, I've seen you hold on to the leash. And she said, I've seen you jerk and take one of their cross liners and they go rolling because you have them on a leash. And she said, everybody thinks that's when you're being cruel, when you yank their leash. She said, honestly, she said, when it's the most dangerous, she said, I've seen you when you've just let go of the leash. 
and let them do what they want. Same in parenting, same in discipleship. And this is what happened here. I'm letting go of the leash. Get what you want. But what's funny about it, they talk to them first, the people, and they give them the best chance ever to say, okay, no, not God. They don't say, you need to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They don't take you to Deuteronomy 28 and say, you know, it says that if you obey the Lord, you'll have these blessings, and if you don't, the curses. It's hilarious. They talk men talk. They say, if you get a king, they don't talk about how it's disloyal to God. They said, pat right here. Pat right here, guys. It's your pocketbook. <laughs> men talk. Men language is always money. Talk money with a man. They say, look, what's going to happen to you if you get a king is it's going to cost you a lot of taxes that you're not having to pay right now. Now, how do you think the Jewish people would respond to taxes? That's what Romans 13 is about. It's talking about taxes. I showed it to you. He talked men's language to them. But no, they wanted to be like everyone else more than they really thought they'd have to pay taxes. They were like, we can take care of this. Oh, and beside that, your sons will have to go off to war. So this is the government control we are talking about today. This is what they say is going to happen. The most that's going to happen is they're going to charge you taxes. You're going to have to sign up for the army, which is still what's happening in Israel. And you're going to see some exorbitant things that occasionally your prime minister may do over in Israel that um, maybe there was a party or two his wife had that was a little more than what you should. I mean, that's how they describe what's going to happen to you with a man in office. What do you think they would say now with what's in office and what they're doing? I'm not talking about a chef bill that's a little high. I'm not talking about taxes that bug you. I'm not talking about how the big fight over there, whether the Orthodox go to war, whether they pay taxes. The Lord was telling them, let me be your government. So Samuel spoke to him, and he gives him a knockout list, telling him, this is what the king will do to you. This is probably his most prophetic statement. He tells him, I prophesy to you. This is what a king will do to you. And it was a level of taxation which will rise to the appalling level. Like he told him, your taxes will go to such an exorbitant rate, you will not be able to handle it. Listen to what he tells them. It'll be the appalling level of 10% of what you own. Hold your seats. Samuel was warning them, this will be the worst day of your life. You'll pay 10% of everything you own in Texas. What would we trade for a flat tax of 10%? Yeah. <laughs> So that's Samuel. He gives some warnings about the king. And then what did the Lord say to Samuel when they asked for a king? So it goes backwards and forth of what was said. But they say, no, we want him. And here comes Saul. So Samuel told the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Oh, guess what? They're in secret service. They'll be put, some of them, in special forces. I've got to read you a day out of the budget of King Solomon. 
1 Kings 4, and this is what I was trying to figure out a minute ago. Solomon's provision for one day. So you've got to run the budget for one day. One day. One day. Run the budget. 1 Kings 4, verse 22. Was 30 cores, and K-O-R-S. When you look it up, it says 231 cubic feet or 6.5 cubic meters of fine flour. Now that's going to look like a Subway sandwich. That's so many feet long, you're not going to believe it. Because it adds to it in about 462 cubic feet or 13 cubic meters or 60 cores of meal. So, the bread makers for one day are making bread that is so big. I mean, they're saying this to wow you. And then it's going to take 10 fat oxen. Not just 10 oxen, but 10 fat oxen a day. 20 pasture-fed oxen. And a hundred sheep besides the deer, the gazelles, the roebucks, and the fattened geese. That's Solomon's dinner bill. Then Solomon had 40,000 stalls of his chariots. 40,000 stalls. Am I reading that right? 40,000 stalls. And 12,000 horsemen. And those deputies provided food for King Solomon and all who came to King Solomon's table each in his month. They allowed nothing to be lacking. They also brought barley and straw for the war horses and baggage horses to the place where it was required and each deputy according to his duty. Extravagant? Yes. To pay for the great building expenditures, Solomon imposed an additional tax on the residents aside from the tenth tax which was used to pay for palace expenses. For that reason, Solomon used compulsory labor. And they said Solomon's foreign policies created a later crisis. But don't worry, it's not going to happen to his son. Rehoboam. Rehoboam is the king. And if you don't ask the question I ask, if it was hard to figure out who would be king after David with only eight wives, how many sons... (laughs) Did Solomon have? Why is the Bible silent on this? I mean, I'm just saying, one commentator dared to say tonight he had one son. With a thousand wives, Solomon had one son. Look at Martin. (laughs) How many little Martins do we have? One son, Rehoboam. How it went down peaceful, I don't know. Baby Solomon figured something out, but we shall remain quiet on this subject. But this son was the son of a foreign wife. It named one woman's name that we had never heard that was a foreigner. And his kingdom was in a mess. For Solomon was told in 1 Kings 11, 13, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of your son. And you know Rehoboam, he had to have a smart mouth on him. You'd think out of all the sons he could have picked a winner. But Rehoboam listened to the young counselors, and he would not listen to the older guys. And he smarted off, and he said, I'm going to make a harsher policy than even my dad made toward these northern tribes. And when he said it, he created such a big split, it created a north and a south. (laughs) It's where it split the union, and they formed their own kingdom of Israel, and he was left with Judah, and the tribes went up north. We stayed together. First Kings 12, 4 through 15. That's when we demand our own way. We have our Ishmaels. We have our kings. We have our problems. It's when we get people that look more like us than they look like God. You know, government's supposed to give us order, agreement, 
military force where one can put a thousand to flight but two can put oh wow it ramps up ten thousand government's supposed to punish evil and it's supposed to give layers of protection good government you know you think of good government a good president would be if i was left in another country they wouldn't leave me there they would come get me out of that country if i got stuck and i wrote this before the debacle because I was party to trying to help some of these people get back in the country a few years back. A good government will come for you. So, the beauty of our form of government, a republic, the beauty of your government is it's not a democracy, but a republic. So many people say democracy is what makes this great. But the fact that it's a republican form of democracy so I want to just put up here a little footnote, I mean. This doesn't mean God endorses all elected governments and everything that an elected government does. Hitler was elected. You can have bad elections. But with the Republican government is an electoral college. And, I mean, there's times that you're frustrated with an electoral college. But if you've ever studied what happens if you don't have one, it took the Founding Fathers a lot of time to make up their mind about an electoral college. And it runs a check and balance that a lot of times we don't see. Because democracy alone is dangerous. Because the majority is starting to not have God's heart in mind. Just a whole bunch of people that are in a disarray that don't believe in the Lord, it doesn't hold it in check. But we do have beauty in our government, in our form of government. The fact that we value freedom. The fact that we have freedoms in our Bill of Rights. Layers of protection. That our leaders are supposed to defend us against enemies, both domestic and abroad. A good leader takes care of domestic enemies and foreign enemies. Government is our servant. And our government is submitted to the laws of God. So when this good government starts to corrupt, it's when it gets away from the Lord. So if you read Romans 13 pertaining to a government official, the official has to be on the side of good for him to be actually an authority. Or I'd be looking at him like, oh, look how he's leading the team. <laughs> he's corrupt. He's leading it only for his own interest. Herod. You look at how Jesus handled Herod. And when Herod asked questions of Jesus, he said nothing. What would you feel about me if my government was asking me questions and I opted not to answer them? Oh, that's not the Christian thing to do. It might be the Jesus thing to do. He said nothing. Luke 23, 8 is unusual. You want to know Herod's motive? When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. Because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped that he had performed some great sign for him. Snap. I can make him do it. You see what Herod wanted? Jesus didn't allow himself to be controlled by anyone. You know, the Lord told me that time, he said, you think that the controllers are going to be in trouble. He said, I'm going to hold you accountable on Judgment Day if you allow yourself to be controlled. Snap. Pilate. You know, they were throwing it between each other. No one wanted it to be their fault. So, you know, Pilate says, I find no fault in him, nothing worthy of death. And he questioned him with many words. You see two men playing games with the Son of God here. And you watch how Jesus handled them. You know, 
Pilate was definitely a picture of government overreach and corruption. Pleasing men, good old boys club of both the Pharisees and the politicians all mixed together. But he smarts off and he says, I have the authority to kill you. You better answer me. He said to Jesus, I have the sword of government and I can kill you. And Jesus said, no you don't. You wouldn't have anything if my father hadn't given it to you. You couldn't do it. If God wasn't in this, you'd have nothing you could do. You know, you see Pilate, he backed down some. But he thought he could smart off and throw that sword of government. But remember, the sword of government is meant to be used on evil men, not innocent men. And Jesus had the upper hand on Pilate even as a man because he was innocent. You know, Pilate backed down some because of his wife's dream and perhaps his conversation. He was like, well, if I can't intimidate this guy, then I'm at least going to ask him, what's truth? What is truth? You know, Jesus held the idea, my father trumps man's authority. And my view of government is my father trumps their authority. There's two things that they say that you can do. What a government fails to give you good protection and what it declares that it's supposed to in Romans 13, 1-7. It says in 1 Timothy 2, 1-4, Pray, where it is written, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all men, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, godly and respectable in every way. This is good and it's acceptable in the sight of God our Father who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of Christ. The context of all men being saved is living in a peaceful government. It's men in high positions. Did you know praying for them is not praying for them being tortured. It's praying for them so that you can lead a peaceful and a quiet life. And that you can be respectful in every single way. We're not praying right. Just because you're praying doesn't mean you're praying correctly. So that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It's not just saved, but to the knowledge of the truth. Paul says that they receive the knowledge of the truth and the love of the truth so as to be saved. You know, you'll meet people that are Christians, and some have truth in them, and some don't. It's important that people receive truth. The second thing that I've seen that you can do when a judge doesn't give you justice is Jesus says in Luke 18, 1 through 6, be obnoxious. Be so obnoxious to that judge that fears neither God nor man that you wear him down till he finally gives you what you're asking. That's Jesus' interpretation. Wear him down. Bug the snot out of them. You got somebody doing your people wrong in your congregation? Tell them, wear the guy down. I've had some of them come to me, say what I do. Keep visiting them. Keep going to them. Finally, they'll get tired enough of you, they'll give you what you want. Even corrupt men. And the next step is, it's very difficult if these fail. If your prayer, and you're going to see them, going to see them, confronting them, speaking to them, holding them accountable, keeping their feet to the fire. This is the Christian way to handle government. Those in power. Then you come to the end of time of government overreach. And now national government is no longer overreach, but they're going in for the possession of the soul. The soul of the nation and the soul of children. 
you know, we said that Jesus had a dismissive attitude towards government. Paul had a submissive attitude. But I'm going to read it a little different. Jesus had a dismissive attitude towards taxes. Paul had a submissive attitude towards taxes. But Jesus was resistive when it's something that doesn't have to do with taxes. Listen to Jesus' word in Mark 8.15. He said, I'm telling you what to watch out for. And it's the yeast. (laughs) The yeast of the Pharisees. So while I'm at it, I'm going to hit the church. And the yeast of Herod. You know, there's something to call him yeast. You old president, you're yeast. (laughs) You don't know what he's just said to you. Jesus was coming against an individual in government. What did Jesus have to say about government? That's about his only statement. You're yeast. And you know how he loved the Pharisees. To get on the Pharisees list is really high. This is people in government who are not standing for godliness. Can we rebuke pagans? Mm, looks like it. It gets a little more clever. Luke picks up in Luke 13, 31-32. Jesus says, go tell that fox today and tomorrow. Go tell that fox. You know, he said that when Jesus wanted to cuss, he used barnyard animals' names. You snake, you viper. That was his cousin calling him. You fox. That's what he called him. And even though John the Baptist knew that Herod held a political position, he still rebuked him openly for his lifestyle that didn't line up with God's law. And then Jesus spoke to Herod and said, you're a fox. Herod kind of liked it because he knew it was true. Jesus demonstrated the missive form of government when it was his view on taxes. But I've got to, are you not understanding what I'm saying? Jesus demonstrated a dismissive, a dismissive view of government with his view on taxes. But listen to his campaign slogan. You can tell he was going to run for office with this campaign slogan. He goes, let me just tell you how I think it should be done. He said, I think the sun should be exempt and I'll have to pay taxes. wonder who's going to get my vote. So in a perfect government, Jesus is going to exempt his own people. And that's a big hallelujah. That's better than 10%. Quite the campaign promise that all the sons of the kingdom will be exempt and only the foreigners will pay taxes. Wow. (laughs) Resistive. It gets worse than that. By the time you get to Revelation, Babylon is the form of government that the world has embraced. Babylon is mentioned 287 times in your scriptures. Outside of Jerusalem, it's the most mentioned city. And it is very aggressive about how we're going to have to deal with the Babylonian government. It is the spirit of the Antichrist. It is the global spirit of one world government and a common currency. But in Revelation 16, 19 and Revelation 14, 8, it is already declared that Babylon will fall. In Revelation 17 and 18, the fall of Babylon is carefully detailed. And it tells us Babylon's government will collapse. Mark of the Beast, you've got to completely resist it. You must resist it. You must teach your people to resist evil government. 
You have to teach them to resist the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of this age, the global one world government. Our social media has grouped us together to think in these terms of the spirit of this age. And it brings forth the Antichrist kingdom. So in conclusion, Daniel was a man who both spoke and lived in a simulated time similar to ours. He lived in a time just like ours. He prophesied into his government. He lived under the difficulty of it. And he resisted its overreach. He did not bow. And in the midst of that, Daniel gave us the best prophecy that shows us this is what the end will be like. And he warns us of it. But he doesn't demonstrate it in words only. He demonstrates it with his actions. And he is an example for you of how to handle government. Part 2. Romans 13, 1-7. Amen.